Section 39 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 39. Chapter 11. The Sueves, Allens, and Vandals in Spain, 400 to 429. The Vandal Dominion in Africa by Ludwig Schmidt, Part 2. The decline was already noticeable under Gesserich's eldest son and successor, Huneric, the husband of the imperial princess Eudoxia. The Moorish tribes living in the Aris Mountains, after fighting for some time with varying fortune, succeeded at last in shaking off the Vandal rule. In a quarrel with the Eastern Empire over the surrender of Eudoxia's fortune, Huneric early gave in. He was even willing to permit the Episcopal See at Carthage to be filled again in 481, and grant the Catholics in his empire still greater freedom of movement. Only when he learned that he had not to fear hostilities from Byzantium did he show himself in his true colors, a tyrant of the worst, most bloodthirsty type. Then he raged against the members of his own house and against his father's friends. Some of them he banished, Others he murdered in a horrible manner in order to secure the succession to his son Hilderic. When nothing more remained for him to do in this direction, he proceeded to oppress his Catholic subjects. Among some of the measures taken by him, the most important is the notorious Edict of 24th of January, 484, in which the king ordered that the edicts made by the Roman emperors against heresy should be applied to all his Catholic subjects, unless they adopted Arianism by the 1st of June in that year. Next, Orthodox priests were forbidden to hold religious services, to possess churches or build new ones, to baptize, consecrate, and so forth, and they were especially forbidden to reside in any towns or villages. The property of all Catholic churches and the churches themselves were bestowed on the Arian clergy. Laymen were disabled from making or receiving gifts or legacies. Court officials of the Catholic creed were deprived of their dignity and declared infamous. For the several classes of the people, graduated money fines were established according to rank. But in case of persistence, all were condemned to transportation and confiscation of property. Huneric gave the execution of these provisions into the hands of the Arian clergy, who carried out the punishments threatened with the most revolting cruelty, and even went beyond them. Repeated intervention on the part of the emperor and the pope remained quite ineffectual, for they confined themselves to representations. Perhaps Catholicism might have been quite rooted out in Africa if the king had not died prematurely on the 23rd of December, 484. Under his successor, Guntamund, better times began for the oppressed Orthodox Church. As early as the year 487, most of the Catholic churches were opened again, and the banished priests recalled. The reason for these changed circumstances lay partly in the personal character of the king, partly in the emperor's separation from the Roman church, which appeared to debar Guntaman's Catholic subjects from conspiring with Byzantium, and partly in the now ever-increasing dimensions of Moorish rebellion. Guntamund was very fortunate in driving back these last to their haunts, but he did not succeed in completely defeating them. He absolutely failed when he attempted to regain possession of Sicily during the struggle between Odovacar and Theodoric the Great. 
The expedition sent thither was expelled by the Ostrogoths, and the king was compelled even to relinquish the tribute which had hitherto been paid to him in 491. Guthaman died on the 3rd of September 496. Thrasimund, his brother, distinguished for his beauty, amiability, wisdom, and general culture, succeeded him on the throne. He pursued yet a different course from that of his predecessors with regard to the Catholics. He tried, like Huneric, to spread Arianism in his kingdom, yet as a rule he avoided the violent measures to which that king had recourse. Thus several bishops, among whom was the Bishop of Carthage, were once more banished, but they were all well treated in their exile. His action was mainly due to religious fanaticism, for there was no ground for political suspicion, at least during the greater part of his reign. The king was on friendly terms with the schismatical emperor Anastasius. After the accession of the Orthodox Emperor Justin in 518, Thrasimund's aversion to the Catholics is easier to understand, especially when the emperor took steps to improve the position of the Orthodox Episcopate in Africa. The Vandal Kingdom found a real support in the alliance with the Ostrogoths in Italy. Theodoric the Great, swayed by the desire to bring about an alliance of all German princes of the Arian faith, wedded his widowed sister Amalafrida to Thrasimund, whose first wife had died childless. She came to Carthage with a retinue of 1,000 distinguished Goths as her bodyguard, as well as 5,000 slaves capable of bearing arms, and brought her royal husband a dowry of the part of the island of Sicily round Lilibaeum in 500. A temporary interruption occurred in the alliance between the two states in 510 through 511, because Thrasimund gave pecuniary support to Gesellic, the pretender to the Visigothic throne, who was not recognized by Theodoric, but on the representation of his brother-in-law he repented and apologized. Serious difficulties occurred in the Vandal kingdom once more through the Moors. The tribes of Tripolis really succeeded in making themselves independent. At the end of his reign, the king himself took the field against them, but suffered defeat. Thrasimund died on the 6th of May, 523. He was succeeded by the already aged, utterly effeminate son of Huneric and Eudoxia, Hilderic, who was averse from warfare. Thrasimund, having a presentiment of future events, had exacted an oath from him not to restore to the banished Catholics either their churches or their privileges, but Hilderic evaded his pledge, for even before his formal accession, he recalled the exiled clergy and ordered fresh elections in the place of those who had died. In foreign politics also, the new king turned entirely from the system hitherto followed of alliance with the Ostrogoth kingdom and entered into a close connection with the Byzantine Empire, where Justinian, the nephew of the aging Emperor Justin, already practically wielded the scepter. Inasmuch as he had coins struck bearing the effigy of Justin I, Hilderic formally gave the impression of recognizing a kind of suzerainty of the Byzantine Empire. To the opposition of Amalafrida and her following, he replied by slaughtering the Goths and flinging the sister of Theodoric into prison. To avenge this insult, the Gothic king fitted out a strong fleet, but his death in 526 prevented the dispatch of the expedition, which would probably have been fatal to the Vandal kingdom. Theodoric's grandson and successor, Athalarich, or rather his mother, Amalasuntha, was content with making remonstrances, which of course received no attention. 
Though there was nothing to fear from the Ostrogoths, the danger from the Moors waxed ever greater. After the year 525, it appears that they had acquired control over Mauritania Caesariensis, with the exception of its capital city, of the Sidifensis province, and of southern Numidia as well. Mauritania Tingitana had already been given up. But especially momentous in its widespread results was the rise of Antalus, who at the head of some tribes in the southern part of Byzacene infested this province more and more, and at last severely defeated the relieving Vandal troops commanded by Elmer, a cousin of Hilderic. The dislike of the Vandals to their king, which had been existent long before this event, showed itself fully at this failure. Hilderic was deposed by the defeated army on its return home, and was imprisoned together with his followers, and in his stead the next heir to the throne, Gelimer, a great-grandson of Gesseric, was called upon to rule. On the 19th of May, 530. Doubtless this usurpation was mainly the result of Gelimer's ambition and love of power, but on the whole it was sustained by the will of the people. They were discontented with the policy hitherto pursued towards the Catholics and Byzantium, as well as with the unwarlike, inconsistent character of Hilderic, who was, to Teutonic ideas, utterly unworthy of royalty. This course of events was most welcome to the Byzantine emperor, who in any case had, for some time past, harbored some idea of the plan, which later he definitely announced for joining all the lands belonging to the old Roman Empire under his own scepter. Just as he afterwards posed as the avenger of Amalasuntha, so he now became the official protector of the rights of the deposed king of the Vandals. He asked Gelimer in the most courteous manner not openly to violate the law regarding the succession to the throne, which had been decreed by Gesseric and had been always hitherto respected, but to be satisfied with the actual exercise of power and to let the old king, whose death might shortly be expected, remain as nominal ruler. Gelimer did not deign at first to answer the emperor. When, however, the latter took a sharper tone and demanded the surrender of the prisoners, he haughtily rejected the interference, emphatically claimed validity for his own succession, and declared that he was ready to oppose with the utmost vigor any attack which might occur. Justinian was now firmly resolved to bring matters to an armed decision, but first took steps to end the war which had begun against the Persians. In the year 532, peace was concluded with them. The scheme directed against the Vandal Kingdom found no approval from the body of crown councillors, before whom Justinian laid it for an opinion. They objected to the chronic want of money in the state treasury, and that the same fate might easily be prepared for the Byzantines, as had befallen Basilicus under Gesseric. The troops, too, which had just sustained the fatigues of the Persian campaign, were little fit to be again sent to an uncertain conflict against a powerful and famous kingdom on the other side of the sea. Justinian was almost persuaded to give up the undertaking when a fresh impulse, that of religion, made itself felt. An oriental bishop appeared at court and declared that God himself had, in a dream, commanded him to reproach the emperor on account of his indecision and to tell him that he might count on the support of heaven if he would march forth to liberate the Christian, that is, the Orthodox, people of Africa from the dominion of the heretics. Through this kind of influence on the part of the Catholic clergy, and through the endeavors of the Roman nobility, who had been reinstated by Hilderic but driven forth again by Gelimer, Justinian was entirely brought round. 
Belisarius, previously commander-in-chief in the Persian War, was placed at the head of the expedition with unlimited authority. It was very fortunate for the emperor that, in the first place, the Ostrogoth queen, Amalasuntha, declared for him and held out prospects of supplying provisions and horses in Sicily, and further, that the Vandal governor of Sardinia, Godus, rose against Gelimer and asked for troops to enable him to hold his own, and finally, that the population of Tripolis, led by a distinguished Roman, Prudentius, declared itself in favor of union with Byzantium. In June 533, the preparations for war were completed. The army mustered reckoned 10,000 infantry under Johannes of Epidamnus and about 5,000 cavalry. Also, the 5,000 men of Belisarius's powerfully mounted guard, 400 heralds, and 600 Huns. The fleet was composed of 500 transport vessels and 92 battleships under the command of Colonimus. Among Belisarius's attendants was the historian Procopius of Caesarea, to whom we owe the vivid and trustworthy description of the campaign. The departure of the ships took place at the end of July, and the last hour of the kingdom, which was once so powerful, had struck. It is only in Africa that we are well acquainted with the internal circumstances of the Vandal Kingdom, for of the parallel conditions in the Spanish communities of the Suevis, Alans, and the Silingian and Esdingian Vandals, we only know at the present time that they were under monarchical rule. The center of Vandal rule in Africa was Carthage. Here, all the threads of the government converged. Here, the king also held court. The Roman division of the land into provinces, Mauritania, Tingitana, Caesariensis, Sidifensis, Numidia, Proconsularis or Zugatana, Byzacene, Tripolitana, remained the same. The districts assigned to the Vandals, the so-called Sortus Vandalorum, were separated as a special commands. The governing people were the Vandals of the Astingian branch, which now alone survived, with whom were joined the Alans and contingents from different peoples, among whom in particular were Goths. The Alans, who probably were already Germanized at the time of the transference to Africa, seem to have maintained a kind of independence for a while, but in Procopius's time, these foreign elements had become completely merged in the Vandals. The Romans were by far more numerous. These were by no means looked upon as having equal privileges, but were treated as conquered subjects according to the usages of war. Marriages between them and the Vandals were forbidden, as they were in all the German states founded on Roman soil, except among the Franks. If, however, the hitherto existing arrangements outside the Vandal settlements remained the same in the main, and indeed even the high offices were left in the hands of the Romans, this only happened because the Vandal kings proved themselves incapable of providing a fresh political organization. On the other hand, the numerous Moorish tribes were to a great extent held in only slight subjection. They retained their autonomy as they did in the time of the Romans, but their princes received from the hands of the Vandal kings the insignia of their dignity. Under Gesseric's stern government, they conducted themselves quietly and completely left off their raids into civilized districts, which had occurred so frequently in the last years of the Roman rule. But even under Huneric, they began, with ever-increasing success, to struggle for their independence. The destruction which befell the works of ancient civilization in Africa 
must be placed to the account of the Moors, not of the Vandals. The first settlement of the Vandals in Africa was on the basis of a treaty with the Roman Empire when the people were settled among the Roman landowners and, as an equivalent, became liable to land tax and military service. The land settlement, which took place after the recognition of the Vandal sovereignty, was carried out as by right of conquest. The largest and most valuable estates of the country landowners in the province of Zugatena were taken possession of and given to individual Vandal households. Further particulars of the details are wanting, yet it is certain that the Roman organization arranged on the basis of landed property grants was not disturbed. The property only changed hands, otherwise the conditions were the same as they had been under Roman government. Of the villa, the manor house on the Roman estate, a vandal with his family now took possession, and the coloni had to pay the necessary dues to the landed proprietor or his representative and render the usual compulsory service. The profits of the single estates were in any case on an average not insignificant, for they made the development of a luxurious mode of life possible, even after an increase in the number of the population. The management of the estate was, as formerly, directed only in a minority of cases by the new masters themselves, for they lacked the necessary knowledge, and service in the court and in the army compelled them to be absent frequently from their property. More often, the management was entrusted to stewards or farmers, conductores, who were survivals from the earlier state of things. Nevertheless, the position of the dependents of the manor, wherever they were directly under the vandal rule, must have been materially improved in comparison with what it had been formerly, for we know from various authorities that the country people were in no way content with the reintroduction of the old system of oppression by the Byzantines after the fall of the Vandal Kingdom. The Vandals, like the other German races, were divided into three classes, slaves, freemen, and nobles. The nobleman, as he now appears, is a noble by service who derives his privileged position from serving the king, not as earlier from birth. The freemen comprised the bulk of the people. Nevertheless, they had, in comparison with earlier times, lost considerably in political importance, while the rights of the popular assembly had devolved in the strengthened monarchy. The slaves were entirely without rights. They were reckoned not as persons, but as alienable chattels. The position of the coloni who were taken over from the Roman settlement was wholly foreign to the Vandals. They remained tied to the soil, but were personally free peasants who kept their former constitutional status. At the head of the state was the king, whose power had gradually become unlimited and differed but little from that of the Byzantine Roman emperor. His full official title was Rex Vandalorum et Alonorum. His mark of distinction and that of his kindred was, as with Mervings, long hair falling to the shoulders. While the earlier rulers dressed in the customary Vandal costume, Gelimer wore the purple mantle like the emperor. The succession to the throne was legally settled by Gesseric's so-called testament. Gesseric, who himself had obtained the throne through the choice of the people, ignoring probably the sons of his predecessor Gunderic, who were still minors, considered himself, after he had fully grasped monarchical power, as the new founder of the Vandal kingship, as the originator of a dynasty. The sovereignty was looked upon as an inheritance for his family, over which no right of disposal belonged to the people. 
As, however, the existence of several heirs threatened the by no means solidly established kingdom with the risk of subdivision into several portions, Gesseric established the principle of individual succession. Moreover, he provided that the crown should pass to the eldest of his male issue at the time being. By this last provision, the government of a minor, unable to bear arms, was made, humanly speaking, impossible. The Vandal Kingdom was the first, and for a long time, the only state in which the idea of a permanent rule of succession came to be realized, and rightly is Gesserich's family statute reckoned in history among the most remarkable facts relating to public law. It remained valid until the end of the kingdom. Gesserich himself was succeeded by his eldest son Huneric, who was succeeded in turns by two of his nephews, Guntamund and Thrasimund and only after the death of the latter came Huneric's son Hilderic. Gelimer obtained the throne, on the other hand, in a direct and irregular way, and his endeavors to represent himself to Justinian as a legitimate ruler did not succeed. The scope of the royal power comprised the national army, the convening of the assembly, justice, legislation, and executive, the appointments to the prefecture, the supreme control of finance, of police, and of the church of any cooperation in the government by the people, by the Vandals, not, of course, by the Romans, such as obtained in olden times, there is no sign whatever. The development of absolute government seems to have been completed in the year 442. According to the brief but significant statements of our authorities, several nobles, who had twice risen against the king because he had overstepped the limits of his authority, were put to death with a good many of the people. The origin of the royal power is traceable to God. The dominant center of the state is the king and his court. In war, the king is in chief command over the troops and issues the summons to the weapon-bearing freemen. The arrangement of the army was, like that of the nation, by thousands and hundreds. Larger divisions of troops were placed under commanders appointed especially by the monarch and generally selected from the royal family. The Vandals had been, even in their settlements in Hungary, a nation of horsemen, and they remained so in Africa. They were chiefly armed with long spears and swords, and were little suited to long campaigns. Their principal strength lay in their fleet. The ships they commanded were usually small, lightly built, fast-sailing cruisers, which did not hold more than about 40 persons. In the great mobility of the army as well as of the navy lay the secret of the surprising successes which the Vandals achieved. But immediately after Gesseric's death, a general military decline began. Enervated by the hot climate and the luxury into which they had been allured by the produce of a rich country, they lost their warlike capacity more and more, and thus sank before the attack of the Byzantines in a manner almost unique in history. The king is the director of the whole external polity. He sends forth and receives envoys, concludes alliances, decides war and peace. On single and peculiarly important questions, he may take counsel beforehand with the chiefs of his following, but the royal will alone is absolute. The Vandals were judged according to their national principles of jurisprudence in the separate hundred districts by the leaders of the thousands. Sentences for political offenses were reserved for the king as executor of justice in the National Assembly. Legal procedure for the Romans remained the same as before. Judgment was passed on trivial matters by the town magistrates, on greater by provincial governors, according to Roman law, but in the name of the king. 
Quarrels between Vandals and Romans were, of course, settled only in the Vandal Court of Justice, according to the law of the victor. That the king often interfered arbitrarily in the regular legal proceedings of the Romans is not surprising, considering the state of affairs, but a similar arbitrary interference among the Vandals is a circumstance of political importance. Treason, treachery against the person of the king and his house, apostasy from the Arian church, come into prominence so that the life and freedom of individuals were almost at the mercy of the monarch's will. The laws which the Vandal kings enacted were, as far as we know, for the most part directed against the Romans and the Catholics. In addition to the numerous edicts concerning religion, the regulations issued against the immorality so widespread in Africa are especially worthy of remark, but like all regulations of the kind only possessed a temporary efficiency. On the other hand, the law of royal succession, which we have already alluded to, possessed universal validity. The officials in the service of the court and state, as also those in the church, are all subject to the royal power. They are nominated by the monarch, or at least confirmed by him, and can be deprived of their functions by peremptory royal decree. The members belonging to the household of the king represent different elements, spiritual and lay, German and Roman, free and unfree together. The highest official in the Vandal court was the Prepositus Regni, whose importance lay entirely in the sphere of the government of the kingdom. His position corresponded to that of a prime minister. As holders of this office appear, so far as is known, only persons of Teutonic nationality. An important post was also that of head of the Chancery of the Cabinet, who had to draw up the king's written edicts, and was, besides, frequently entrusted with different missions of a special political importance. The existence of a special Arian court clergy is to be inferred from the fact that at the princely courts house chaplains are mentioned. Besides these, there lived permanently at the Vandal court a supernumerary class of men who, without holding any definite office, enjoyed the favor of the king and were employed by him in different ways. A number of them seem to have borne the title Comes, as among the Franks, Ostrogoths, and others. From among them were taken, for example, the envoys sent to foreign nations. Together with the provincial officials who might be temporarily present at the court, and the Arian bishops, the persons of principal position in the king's circle frequently cooperated in the decision of important questions of state affairs. As a general designation for these persons when they belong to the laity, the expression domestici appears. Admittance into the royal household required an oath of fealty. From among the king's circle were drawn the greater part of the higher officials in the provincial government, especially over the Vandals. The most important officers of the Vandals were the heads of the thousands, the Chiliarchs, Milanari, on whom devolved the management of the districts, i.e. the settlements of a thousand heads of families, in judicial, military, administrative, and fiscal respects. Outside the Vandal allotments, the organization of the Roman system in Africa still remained, with the exception of the military, and the duties of the separate offices were discharged by the Romans themselves. The only exceptions were the islands in the Mediterranean. Sardinia, Corsica, and the Balearic Isles were united into one province and placed under a governor of German nationality who resided in Sardinia and exercised both military and civil functions. The ruler has, by virtue of his position, absolute right over the revenue of the state, 
state property and royal private property are identical. A principal source of revenue is provided by the produce of the royal domains, which in Roman Africa occupy a particularly important place. To this was added the taxes paid by the provincials, from which the Vandals themselves were entirely exempt. The burdens, however, cannot as a rule have been so oppressive as they were under the Roman rule, for later on, under the government of the Byzantines, the former more lenient conditions were regretted. Besides the taxes were to be taken into account the proceeds from the tolls, the right of coinage, fines, dues from mines and manufactures, and other unusual receipts. The Arian, as well as the Catholic Church, is subject to the royal power. The appointment of bishops is dependent on the consent of the sovereign. The synods are convoked by the king and can only meet with his permission. The Estingian Vandals, in their seats in Hungary, had clearly been already converted to Arianism, while the Selingians, Alans, and Suaves, in the first phase of their Spanish career, were still adherents of paganism. After the occupation of Africa, the Catholic clergy were entirely expelled from the country districts in the province of Zugatena, as well as from Carthage, and the vacant places were given over to the Arian clergy, with the whole of the church property. In the other parts of the kingdom, few or no Arian priests were to be found. Only under Huneric, who presented the whole of the Catholic churches to the Arians, a measure which certainly was never wholly carried out, were they installed in greater numbers. The bishop residing in Carthage bore the title of patriarch and exercised as metropolitan a supreme power over the whole of the Arian clergy. Since the Arian church service was held in the vernacular, as among the other Germans, the clergy were mostly of German nationality. The position of the Catholic Church was, as has been already remarked, very varied under the different rulers and very largely dependent on the state of foreign politics. In Africa, after the tumult of the conquest had passed over and the endowment of the Arian established church was put into effect, Gesseric only proceeded against those adherents of orthodoxy from whom danger to the state was to be feared. The clergy beyond the Vandal allotment were closely supervised, but they were not molested if they did not oppose the royal will, but confined themselves to the execution of their pastoral duties. The real persecutions began first under Huneric, and were continued, after an interval of peace, by Guntamund and Thrasimund, though in a milder form. Hilderic gave the Catholic Church its complete freedom again. His successor Gelimer, an ardent Arian, was too much occupied with political complications to be able to be active in that sphere. Ecclesiastical conditions suffered, therefore, only temporary, not permanent disturbance, and sustained no material hurt. Rather, the persecutions contributed largely to temper the inner strength of the African church. When the Vandals occupied Africa, they were undoubtedly still in the same primitive stage of civilization in which they had lived in their homes in Hungary. Their political position as conquerors, the settlement in an enclosed district, the sharp religious opposition, must certainly have hindered a rapid acceptance of the Roman influence. But under Gelimer, they quite adopted the luxurious mode of life of the Romans, i.e. of the rich nobility. They lived in magnificent palaces, wore fine clothes, visited theaters, gave themselves up to the pleasures of an excellent table, and did homage with great passion to Aphrodite. Roman literary culture had just made its appearance in the royal court and among the nobility. Gesseric was himself certainly, at least at first, not skilled in Latin, 
but one of his grandsons was famous for having distinguished himself in the acquisition of manifold knowledge. The same is said of Thrasimund, and we may assume it of Hilderic. Latin was the language of diplomatic intercourse and legislation, as it was in the other German kingdoms. The Vandal language was quite supplanted, and only remained in use in popular intercourse and in the church service. So, in the last years of the Vandal dominion, Roman literature in Africa produced a tiny harvest. The poet Dracontius is to be remembered in this connection, and the poets preserved in the anthology of the Codex Salmasianus and Bishop Fulgentius of Ruspe. The art of architecture found in Thrasimund an eager patron. Mention is made of splendid buildings which were raised under this king. There is certainly no authentic trace extant of any artistic capacity among the Vandals themselves. End of section 39. Recording by Colleen McMahon.